Hey, this is John. Let's Talk Native is now on Patreon. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash letstalknative. We will be producing exclusive content for our Patreon supporters. Thanks for checking us out. Let's Talk Native is produced at the LTN Studios on the Cataraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for Native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. No prayers, no buffalo speeches, and no spirituality shows. While this podcast does not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do take a tough look at history, oppression, and our survival. We highlight the voices of Native activists, writers, poets, artists, thinkers, and musicians who are fighting for the rights of Indigenous people all over Turtle Island. We may step on a few toes through our examination of culture, art, politics, history, and identity. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. In this moment of historical change and social justice, our voices matter now more than ever before. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. So, yeah, well, this is John Kane. Hey, thanks for uh, joining us here. You know, I keep hearing voices from different segments of American society and, uh, you know, people of color in particular that they keep offering that same old line that we're all in this together. And... Are we? I mean, are we really in all in this together? As I look at any part of whether you're just talking about this crazy year that is 2020 or just in general, historically, have we really all been in this together? Look, I know we're all sharing the same planet. We're just not getting the same share of the planet. So as, as I as I think about this concept, I'm thinking, no, no, we aren't. We are not all in this together. Because many of us have been trampled on by others for centuries. So when I hear a Native person or a Black person or a white person who, who is trying to be an ally uh, to you know, social justice issues, and they say we're all in this together, it's, it's, it's kind of like the all lives matter thing. No, that's not the way it plays out. It is not enough. Look, if we let's put it this way, if we have to deal with social justice and racial equity, then clearly we aren't all of this together. Some of us are on the bottom and others are on the top. And it's not like the people on the bottom are the ones making decisions. We're not deciding to be at the bottom. We are, you know, we're trying to not just survive because many of us are tired of just eking out a an existence. We want more, and we don't want it from somebody else. We just want everybody else to stop to, to stop putting the brakes on us. So, look, even as we talk about COVID, there's no question that people of color are being affected disproportionately by this. Now, is it because we are somehow uh, fragile? No. It's because of this is the systems that are out there. There's there's no doubt that there, that systemic racism exists. You see it across all segments of or any, any metric you want to measure: prison population, uh, um, uh, poverty, you know, again, uh, health, 
life expectancy, um, um, mother mortality at childbirth, all, all of this. Have you mentioned any of those things? And you're going to see people of color that are disproportionately damaged or, or that we, we, we lock in the lowest, lowest spots on, on any of those charts. And as a Native person, I'm sorry. When, when I hear people say, well, the, you know, the way that we make change is that we, we vote in their elections. I'm not going to belabor that point anymore. I've talked about that enough in the run-up to this latest debacle. But even as I, as I hear interviews of you know, Deborah Holland and, and Cherise David and, and how great it is that they are in the positions that they're in, they had to leave our people to join that system to, to do anything. And then, look, they're, they're, they're not all in this together. We we hold all of the spaces that nobody else wants to hold. So I want to talk about this. I, I, I want to elaborate a little bit about not only the, the all of the disparities, but the fact is that even as we challenge the these things that are that were you know, are set against us, whether it's COVID nineteen, whether it's social justice issues, whether it's it's poverty. We are not at a level, we are in a, in a level playing field. And, and I'm not saying this because, I mean, I hear that, that same argument put back on us, put it that way. I, you know, that because we perhaps don't pay as much taxes on native territory as they do off territory, that, that we have some sort of disproportionate advantage. But see, that's because the other, all, everything else is not being, being measured out. So, I guess to talk about the disparity that exists and, and look, I could do a whole show on, on what black people and, uh, and some of the immigrant populations have, have gone through, but this is let's talk native. So I'm going to talk about some of the real circumstances, the real policies that exist, you know, even as, as you know, we, we think about things like the UN declaration of the rights of indigenous peoples. For one thing, that document which has no teeth whatsoever. It's an aspirational document, as they call it, right? It, it is the minimum standard for dignity and survival. The minimum. And most countries, especially, you know, affluent countries like the United States and Canada, they can't even meet the minimum standard. It's not because they can't afford to. It's because it, it disrupts their own narrative about who we are as native people in the context of, 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 of these colonial powers. You know, we, we continue to be a black eye to, you know, to, to the colonizers. And that's why there is so very little in terms of concessions that are not just given, but when I talk about concessions, I'm not asking for anything. I just mean concede to us that we, that we have, you know, our, our right to distinction. So again, I'm not asking for gifts. I'm not, I'm not even talking about reparations. That we could have that conversation, because clearly we have suffered losses. We have suffered significant losses in in terms of land and uh, and our ability to uh, to sustain ourselves. Look, we we weren't a pover an impoverished people. When I mean, if, if when white people washed up on our shores, they saw nothing but poverty and destitution. Do you think that, that they would have come over in droves the way they did? Of course not. <clears throat> they saw a people living comfortable lives, <clears throat> a, a, a land a land that seemed to produce a bounty for to sustain life. 
It didn't do it all by itself. We had to help it along. But so when I, when I hear people talk about this concept, this idea, oh yeah, we're all in this together and we need to, we need to all support each other. That support's not even. I, look, I appreciate the fact that there are times that, uh, that people have stepped up with other oppressed people to help. And, but it doesn't make them oppressed be- people necessarily. Look, sometimes, you know, uh, you know, black people and native people have, have joined together. But we aren't always fighting for the same thing. So we aren't all in this. And I guess it depends on how you define this. We aren't all in this together. Because if we're not, if we as native people are not trying to become um, or fight for equal rights protections under the U.S. Constitution, if we're still out there saying, yeah, that's not our Constitution, and the fact that you've tried to subjugate us under those, uh, under that, uh, under that document, is still something that's problematic. Look, I've talked about, you know, I've talked about the voting issue. I've talked about. Um, you know, representation. I've talked about all of this stuff before. Even the fact that our own people feel like we've got to hire white people to be our to be our mouthpieces for us. Part of that is because we we kind of accept to some extent how rigged the system is. So what do we do? We try to play that game, a game that was never designed for us. And so no matter what we do, we are playing that game at a disadvantage. Because look, it doesn't matter how many lobbyists we hire. It doesn't matter how many campaign contributions we make. You think the, I mean, if you added all native dollars together that, that have gone into this racket that, you know, people call lobbying and campaign contributions, we don't, we don't even scratch the surface compared to the oil industry. I mean, these industries that, that are destroying the planet, they've got way more money to spend. So I don't even know why we even try that, but I've, I've heard people say it for, for, you know, for most of my adult life, I've heard people say, well, you need to, you need to, you know, put some money together and, you know, spend a couple million bucks on lobbying. I've been listening to that since, since I was in my twenties and, and it, it pissed me off when I was into my twenties and, and I'm still pissed off because now we're actually doing it. We're actually spending the millions of dollars on these lobbyists. So where does, what does that money get us? Nothing, nothing. And as, even as we have native people that run for offices and, and actually win a couple of elections. Yeah. Look, for one thing, I'm not taking anything away from, from Sharice David and uh, David's and, and Deborah Holland for, for not only winning an election, but, uh, but being reelected, but they're, they're not the first, they're the first women, native women, but they're not the first native people. I, I've mentioned it before. Look, there, there's two other Republican congressman, uh, congressman from Oklahoma, and they aren't there fighting for native rights, even though they're native. I've I've mentioned it before. There, there was actually a a native vice president of the United States, Charles Curtis, under uh, uh, Herbert Hoover, and he sucked. <laughs> this is not a play on Hoover, by the way, but uh, no, he he was terrible. He under his. Time as both a congressman and then a then a U.S. senator and and as a, a vice president, there was some of the largest losses of native lands that that took place you know, historically, especially in the areas of um, you know Oklahoma and you know the five civilized tribes. 
But Charles Curtis was terrible for, for Native policy and for Native peoples and Native distinction. He was an assimil assimilationist. And, and look, he didn't deny being Native, but he really did conform with, with being non-Native. He, 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 you know, he was pretty good at white passing if, if he tried. But he was not a, a good politician in that system. He, he did not play that game to help us. He played that game to help himself. Now, and I'm not saying that every Native person who enters into the U.S. political system is only trying to advance themselves. But they have to essentially submit to that system. And that system does not accommodate. I mean, again, let me, let me be clear here. Social justice is not a numbers game. If you're just gonna gonna say, okay, well, in order to get justice, we need to have, you know, more participation. We need to have more people involved. We need to have more money involved, and, and all that other stuff. That's not the way it works. The reason you have injustice is because the numbers stack up against oppressed people. And, and it's not always stacked up against oppressed people because we aren't uh, there aren't enough of us. I mean, look at uh, African apartheid. I mean, look look at look at the situation there. Look in South America. It is still white people in many of those South American countries that that are the bastions of power in, in those in those countries. And if they if they aren't, they usually have the back end of the United States to help do a coup to, to make sure that it is. The people, the the, the black and brown people of these countries. They don't have people in a position of power that look like them. And in, in the United States, I don't want a native president of the United States. No, I, I don't. I mean, or, or vice president of the United States. That, that's not, that does not solve a goal for me because that means that that person, I remember listening to Barack Obama give his, um, his eulogy speech, if you want to call it that, to... Um, uh, to Nelson Mandela. And he talked about how, how grateful he is that the United States, you know, allowed him and his family to, you know, uh, to, to rise, you know, to break those, all those glass ceilings as they call them. Right. And, and to live the life that they live. But you know what? Things didn't improve dramatically for black people when Barack Obama was the president. So good for Barack Obama and Michelle Obama and his kids. Good for them. But you know what? We aren't all in this together. They weren't in it to, to help everybody, you know, the, the most oppressed people. And look, there are scholars, philosophers. There are, you know, um, legal experts who made it clear that you judge the character of a country by how the most oppressed people are treated. You don't, you don't judge it by how wealthy the wealthy can be. And, and, and if you, again, if you make it a numbers game, if you just, you know, talk about average income or average unemployment or average this or average that, you have people on the top that disproportionately skew, skew those numbers that make the people at the bottom invisible. When you've got, you know, uh, over half the, uh, you know, 50% of the, of the United States wealth concentrated in about 1%. Of the, of the population, when you have that level of disparity in terms of you know, poverty and wealth and income, you, just, you can ignore the people that are on the bottom.
And in fact, you ignore them when it comes to equity, but you don't ignore them when it comes to, you know, how you're going to play to their fears when it comes to getting a, to win an election or how you're going to, you know, rally these people who will literally vote against their own self-interest because they can identify with, you know, a, a white supremacist, let's say. I mean, there are native people who supported Donald Trump. You know, I know we, we can get into, the, you know, into all those numbers. But the fact that there's any, the fact that there's any black people who would support somebody who has clearly demonstrated such, uh, such racial bias. I mean, it, it, it just kind of goes to show you where, where people, you know, how people can rationalize what their next steps are going to be. So the reason I wanted to, to address this topic the way I, you know, the way I wanted to address it is because we have to understand that we aren't all the same. And we aren't all the same. And this isn't about, you know, God created all men equal. It's, it's, it's not about that. It's, we aren't all the same because history has not treated us the same. You know, power has not treated us the same. Well, and look, there's no question that if you go from region to region, the, the earth itself can, uh, can be a large contributor to the wealth of a people. And I don't mean just because of oil or gold being discovered and that kind of stuff. Just, just how you know, plentiful the, the, the earth is in terms of nutrition and that kind of thing. So, so we understand that. But in a, when you look at a country like the United States, where the rest of the world thinks that it's just this, most, this, this tremendously affluent territory. I was just listening to a story today about people in, in Alabama who have had a resurgence in hookworm. You know where hookworm comes from? It's from sewage running on the ground outside their houses. And this is something that shouldn't be a, be a problem. And, and, and what the expert said is, we don't usually see this in developed countries. Well, what does that tell you? It tells you that, it tells you that there's large segments of, uh, of the population within North America that are living in third world conditions. So again, don't tell me we're all in this together because we aren't. I, I once saw this cartoon and it always recycles around this time of year because of uh, the Thanksgiving holiday. And it shows all these people eating this lavish dinner and, and, it's, and it's like a cross, country, uh, a cross cut of the, of, of the earth below their feet, below their floorboards and are just the bones of native people that, the, that these, these people are just eating over the top of. And and to me, that captures a little bit about how affluence works. You have to, you literally cannot be, have the, the extreme levels of wealth in the United States without having, without having taken food out of somebody else's mouth, without having exploited people, uh, you know, to, to the point of, you know, not just slavery, but poverty, unlivable wages. I mean, you, you can't reach that level. I mean, and I, and I think about everything from, you know, the guy who's desperate to hang on to his doorman's position in New York City on the, on the Upper East Side, you know, or, or, or you know, these, these jobs that, that people can, can be, almost be invisible in. And why? It's because we aren't all in this together. There are many, many people who are, who are carrying the wealth for other people. They, they, are, they are providing that wealth. 
And they do. And look, we you know, I talk about voting with, with our dollars. We we you know the the things that we purchase, the the wages that we're willing to work for because jobs are scarce. I mean, we do this stuff in many ways. We 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 conduct ourselves in a, in a way that where we contribute to our own poverty. You know, we're, we're also seeing all the stuff that's advertised to us, and, and we and we cling to these things that we think are so important to us, whether it's the, you know, the latest, you know, electronic gadget or, you know, the, you know, the car or, the, or whatever it is, the clothes, the brands. I mean, it, it's amazing to me when I think about how people who don't have the money to spend will still spend the money on these, these small pieces of, of um, affluence that they can grab onto. And, and look, and I'm not blaming them. I'm not blaming them because I get it. I mean, it's like when I hear people say, well, that woman's on welfare. Look, at she's got, she's got her nails done. <laughs> really? So you think the problem is that she got her nails done rather than what, worked? I mean, or, or the same thing I'll hear about, you know, food stamps or SNAP benefits. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll condemn somebody for having even the slightest bit of luxury to their life. Like, no, damn it. If you're going to be on snap, you have, you have to, you have to look poor. You have to act poor. You have to be poor. I mean, when they were doing the the stimulus checks and they, and they added a few extra dollars to, uh, to unemployment uh, benefits. And it wasn't just a few, it was $600. The wealthy people in Washington were so concerned that some people, some people, would be actually making more money not working than when they worked. But you know what? That's kind of the way averages work, folks. Because when you look at the, at the mean income in the United States, that's not what people are making because that's been skewed so much again by that 1%. So don't tell me that because some people add, having an extra 600 bucks added to their, to, to, to their unemployment benefits that somehow that's going to screw up the, uh, with the, the social contract? Are you freaking kidding me? And, and the worst part about it is any of these, these benefits, whether it was a stimulus check or whether it's, you know, you know uh, supplemental unemployment insurance or, or, you know, or SNAP benefits or whatever, that goes right back. You know, <laughs> there are people who get wealthy off of that stuff. Because we spend that, we spend all that money right back in. And I say we, I mean collectively, just people in general. I mean, it gets spent right back in. So the corporations, they get a, they get a double bonus. Because to be clear, the the first stimulus checks or the the bill there, or I can't remember what they what they called it, but anyway, the, the first uh, act they that they passed that was supposed to the CARES Act. That's what it was. The majority of that money went to corporations right off the bat. I mean, and I mean the overwhelming majority. I mean, everybody says, oh, $1,200 to every person. That was a drop in a bucket compared to what the industry's got. So they get that right out of the gate. And of course, then there's also, you know, um, not just low interest, but, but loans that could turn into grants if they did certain things. So they, they, they threw all this money. I mean, Trillions of dollars, all this money, you know, and, and most of it went to corporations. And then the money that went to the individuals, that ultimately went back to the corporations too. 
So when I when I hear people, you know, these politicians get up on, uh, you know, on uh, during the news cycles talking about how this has to be done to help the people. They don't ever talk to you because it was the Democrats that were that were responsible for a lot of that money going to corporations. It wasn't just the Republicans. Everybody thinks that, you know, that, that, that these the, these are such polar opposites. Nah, they aren't. The the disproportionate amount of aid that went because of this COVID-19 thing went to corporations on in the beginning. And then ultimately, it all goes back to the corporations because where the hell are we going to spend uh, spend money on? Where, where are we going to spend it? Walmart, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and and so this is this is kind of the, the craziness, and that's why when I when I hear people on the radio or on television or in you know in, in any of the uh, the the internet feeds, the uh, social networking, all of that stuff, and and I hear somebody who doesn't live like me tell me that we're all in this together. It's in a way, it's almost like saying, "Suck it up." We're all with you. No, you've got chauffeurs driving you around. <laughs> you know, there are many of us who, for one thing, part of the reason that, that people of color are, are, have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, it's because where we sit in this we are all together thing, right? We're at the bottom. We still have to go to work. We get considered, you know, these essential employees why? Because we're serving other, other people. Because we are on the lowest level of the service industry. And we can't afford to not, uh, not take care of our kids and, and have, you know, ha, you know, have our income affected. And, and of course, when they do these, these benefits, they're one-shot they're one, uh, one deals. I mean, unemployment insurance has run out. What are they saying? I think they're saying you know, the day after Christmas, a whole lot of people are going to find themselves in a world of hurt. Merry Christmas. <laughs> God bless America, right? Yeah, why? Because those people don't, don't care because we are not all in it together. There are many of us that have to carry a much bigger burden we, and, and just to do the, just to survive. I mean, again, when I, I think about the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, it says, that these articles represent the minimum standard for dignity and survival. Well, I got to tell you, I don't know where, where the dignity comes in. And survival, I mean, all it means is that, is that we, aren't, we aren't dying at the rate we were dying before. But trust me, we are still dying. We have the highest suicide rates. We have the highest substance abuse rates. We have the highest mortality rates for for child infant mortality and for uh for for mothers giving birth we are dying it did you know they aren't massacring us in the way that they did in in wounded knee or sand creek or you know or, or, or other places but we're still dying because we are not all in it together some of us are on the bottom being trampled every single day all right, we're at the bottom of the hour, so we're going to take a break, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll come right back. Um, I, want, I want to go a little farther. So let me get into a little bit more details. I also want to talk about an event that's coming up, and I'll talk about that when we uh, when we come back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native.
All right, thanks for coming back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Hey, before I get back into it, there is a um, an event that's coming up on Saturday, November 28th. It is a virtual concert, and it's got a lot of some of the best Native performers I'm aware of. Jimmy Wolf, who's one of my favorites, uh, is the one who sent me the the, the link and the um, the flyer for it. I've got it posted up on my um, on my uh, Facebook group pages. In fact, I shared it ab- ab- across a bunch of them. Um, so it's a it's a virtual concert. So you're going to be able to watch this either through uh, um, uh, Facebook Live, um, or I think they're even going to you know put up some Zoom information so you can you can follow it through Zoom. Now, the the Aquasasti Freedom School they have a, a Facebook page and it'll be streaming on their page. I'll also update uh, any any other information I get on this thing. But this thing is running from 11 o'clock in the morning to 7 p.m. So this is an all day thing, and you can get in there and. And check it out. And of course, if, if it's a, a live stream, you'll be able to watch it later on too. But uh, um, I got to assume they're trying to do some sort of fundraising for the Aquasasti Freedom School. Um, so although it's not real clear to me exactly how, uh, it is a free event. So uh, check it out. Again, it's it's Saturday, November 28th. And that it starts at 11 a.m. Uh, and it runs all the way through. I think the last performer uh, will perform at 6.30, so it's going to run for you know another half hour beyond that. So uh, check it out. Um, and again, you don't want to miss Jimmy Wolf. I mean, he is he just he's one of my favorites. I've got a chance to do a... Um, you know, he's joined me on my show a few times, in, even in New York and, uh, and on Let's Talk Native. We, uh, we've connected up at the uh, um, uh, Native American Music Awards and, uh, and a couple of other concert events that he's done. So it's... Uh, uh, love love to watch him play love to to, to hear him uh he is a really um incredible blues artist so uh anyway check it out again saturday november 28th uh from 11 a.m to probably 7 p.m um and 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 again as i was saying before before the break i can give example after example after example where uh, the lack of parity that exists, the, the, you know, the fact that there are some things that that are unique uh, are, are treated in a you know di- in a disproportionate way, and you know, and of course, I've talked about the mascot issue. Native people are are unquestionably the only people that are used in the way that we are for this mascot issue, and and it's predominantly by white people. So when I talk about the fact that we aren't all in this together, look, when I go, again, having gone back to my old high school and then seeing these white guys get up there and talk about being Indians and, and almost looking at you like, no, I'm the Indian, not you. Of course, I'm not crazy about that word and I don't, I don't claim that word anyway. But, but my point is that this is the, the amount of identity theft that exists. And, and again, native people experience this in ways that, that nobody else does. And of course it isn't just, you know, native people that you, that you would think of right off the top. I, I think about even, you know, what, what people who are identified as Latina or Latino or Latinx or uh, Hispanic, look at how their identities have been stolen. Look, if they're Brown people, they're indigenous. And yet merely because of speaking Spanish, they get, uh, which which is an indoctrination and, a, and, a, and an assimilation, an oppression. Merely because of that, they get labeled something else that, that defies their own ancestry, defies their own history. And 
we all struggle with it. And, and, I, and, I, and that includes me because, look, I've, I've got caught a few times because, you know, a few times I've, I've tried to, you know, utilize what I thought was the most appropriate word uh, to, and, and, I, and maybe it's, it's my own fault for thinking that I have to distinguish between Spanish-speaking indigenous people and English-speaking indigenous people. And there shouldn't be. I mean, look, I realize that along with the, um, uh, with the, the, the Spanish came Catholicism and, and church and all that other stuff. But all the English-speaking Native people went through that same stuff too. <clears throat> so none of this stuff is, uh, is handled in, in a way that is fair to our ancestry. Uh, you know, so it gets, again, we talk, we talk about education. You know, my, my grandson joined me on the last program to talk about how native issues, native history, how native people are taught in school. And it's like most of it is de devoid of any reality. And and again, it fits right in with the whole mascot thing, because like even when when we're when people are teaching about native people, they grab a snapshot in time, this small little window where they can say that's what a native person was. Not is, was. There are still people, I mean, one of the problems I have with the word indigenous, even though I've got it on my head here, um, I think that's a hat I got, <laughs> is that in many ways that word is framed to mean the people who are descendants of the original people. And look, while I am a descendant, I am those people. I mean, and so the, the whole idea, I'm not trying to, to, to de deny my ancestry, but to suggest that that I am only a descendant of that, or I'm, a, I'm of native descent. No, I'm native. But see, this is how things get framed differently. And, and part of it has to do with the imposition of, of language, the eradication of language, and make no mistake about it. Our language didn't just fade away all by itself. It, it, it was taken. It was taken away. It was, it, there were policies that were, you know, that insisted that we give up our language. And, and again, whether it was to giving it up to, uh, to Spanish or, or giving it up to English. Children were punished. And I don't mean just punished because they, you know, got scolded or sat in the corner. I mean beaten and abused and died. And, and, and you know, we, we talk about residential schools, but, but if you look at what the, um, the Spanish-speaking indigenous people um, went through in at the hands of all these, you know, these Catholic missions run by priests, some of the most abusive people in, in the history of the, of, of the, the planet, so, you know, the amount of death that came at the hands of, like, Huna Paracera, who, was, <laughs> who this recent pope made into a saint— I mean, the, the amount of, of death that, that um, you know, that was at the hands of, of churches and government, it's, I mean, it, it is not an exaggeration when we call it a genocide. It's not. And, and, and as I've said many times over, genocide isn't just about killing people. Genocide is about eliminating a people by creating the conditions that their culture and their identity, their distinction will cease to exist. One of the ways to do that, language is a good place to start. And so that's why they did it. That's why they destroyed so much language. It was very, very difficult for us to maintain, the, uh, maintain our languages. And the fact that we did 
in any way, in, at any level, is an incredible testament to, to the people who came before us. And of course, at some point, even our own people start to think, man, I know how, how our people are treated for speaking our own languages. So our own people get to the place where we start to wonder, does it make sense to teach my children this? My father, his, you know, his first language was Ma, Gunyageha. He did, my generation, all of my cousins did not, none of us, should say, none of my cousins were taught the language in the home. All of my aunts and uncles um, spoke it. Grandparents all spoke it. But, not, but, but none of my generation. So that becomes a conscious decision. And, and part of that is their own sense for the liability that came with, with, with maintaining some of that distinction. And I'm not saying you know, there wasn't some effort to, to, to keep some of it, uh, keep some of that distinction. Obviously, we didn't. The color of our skin is one of those things that's, uh, that's hard to change. But it's, it's funny. We all gave the names. We all gave the quote-unquote Indian names, even as we didn't pass on the, have the language passed on. It's, it's kind of incredible. It's, it's incredible in many different ways. But I think it's, it's really important that people realize that Institutions like like schools, like the education systems in the United States and Canada and, and South America, they were all geared towards eradicating that native distinction. And so we end up with, with, a, with a couple of problems. One, you know, what, what we're not what we are taught and what we aren't taught. But there's also a self-esteem issue. When, when you realize that that everything that you're taught suggests that white people got it all right. That they, that, you know, they were the champions of everything. Everything that's good in the world came from white people. And of course, that's not true. And, and in fact, most of the evils of the world, we could, we could argue, came from white people. And I'm not you know, just talking about you know, uh, you know, Stalin or Hitler or, you know, or Mussolini. Or, I'm not even talking about those individuals. It came at the hands of individuals whose names we will never know. Because of the atrocities that took place, so so whether you were, whether you were a plantation owner or just just a guy who, who, who abused the slaves, or whether you were you know a, uh, you know some decision maker down in Washington, or whether you were the priests and the nuns who ran the residential schools that the the government paid for. Look, some of the things that were done to our people. It it, it defies. Any sense of decency that, that anybody could, you know, could, could, could consider. And that's why I say today, when, when I hear, and again, it, I find it very frustrating. When I hear Native people say, well, we have to stop the hate and we, we just have to love each other more and we need to be prayerful and we, need to, uh, we have to remember that we're all in this together. And I'm thinking, no, we, we, we really aren't. We really aren't. We're still in a situation where the heaviest burdens are placed on, on the people with, with, the, with the most limited resources. The, the people who are less equipped to carry those burdens are the ones who are burdened even more. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a coincidence that there was this analogy to being uh, a beast of burden and being um, a pagan if, uh, by, and by pagan, I mean that you, that you didn't 
follow the white man's religion that they stole from brown people, by the way. But no, it's not a coincidence because we are still the beasts of burden. You know, the bottom line is all of the wealth that accumulates in that 1%. Yeah, sure. Some of it, you know, comes from generational, you know, uh, wealth. But that wealth goes away if it's not replenished. And we're the ones replenishing it. We're replenishing it with our labor. We're, we're replenishing it with our, you know, our consumption. And when I, when I mean consumption, I mean with what we're, the fact that when money comes to us, it, goes, it leaves us immediately. And so, and, and of course, we become victims of, of every marketing campaign, every big box store, everything that we're convinced that we need. And of course, there's a there's a lot of pressure that comes in with you know with the societal pressures. Look, I, I look, I know how impoverished people are treated. I know how the, how we're, how we are looked down upon. And so. When I see some of our people, as I said earlier, trying to, you know, to, to flash their $300 sneakers, you know, or, or, the, or their new cars or whatever else, even though when you go, go to their homes, you realize what poverty people are really living in. But just for that moment, just for that one visual effect, we, we, we try not to be the poorest people on the planet. And some people can't even have that. And so that's why I say for the next person who stands in front of a microphone, in front of a camera, and says, we're all in this together, I want you to slip on a pair of shoes from somebody who's who actually lived in poverty. I want, I want you to think for a moment what that life must be. I, you know, again, this, this show that I, that I heard today that talked about these homes where the raw sewage is just running, you know, you know, you know, running across their yards. Why? Because there's no, there's no infrastructure for, for, for the most impoverished people. Look, I have the time, you know, there, I know that there are places and I've been to some of these places where the homes, they're places that you can't step because you might break through the floor. I mean, these, mobile homes and modular homes and these FEMA trailers and this kind of stuff that, that end up not being just temporary housing for somebody for years. That's what used to go out to Indian country. These old FEMA trailers or trailers that, that FEMA was acquired, even if they weren't new, they'd end up on uh, going to a native territory. And those things are, aren't designed to, to last 20 years or forget about 30 or 40 years. You know, so we, we find ourselves in, in, these, in these untenable situations where we're trying to eke out um, a life with some level of dignity. And it's not always easy. You know, oftentimes we have to sacrifice something you know, we have to sacrifice, you know, perhaps some part of a, of a healthy lifestyle so we can have a, that moment that we that we can forget for that moment that we're that we're impoverished. And that's where substance abuse comes in.
That's where depression comes in. All of the mental health issues that, uh, that people face. Because I got to tell you, I mean, I, I, I always find it difficult to, you know, to, to listen to these talking heads. And, and I'm not just talking about the news people. I mean the people who make the news. I mean, I'm talking about the politicians. I'm talking about these people who stand up and speak on behalf of other people. And I'm thinking, do you really speak for somebody? I mean, because I, I, don't, I don't see it that way. I don't see people speaking on behalf of the real needs of other people. And, and when they do, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, like when you're watching one of those nature shows and, and you see, you know, some animal really, really struggling, you know, because they're, they're dying of thirst or starvation or whatever else. And I'm thinking, man, you had all these cameras there. You had all these people there. Why didn't somebody just, you know, throw the, you know, throw the animal chicken nugget or something to, to, to eat or something like that. I mean, it's like, no, we're going to, we're capturing this raw footage. We're going to show the real agony of life. And then I, then I look at some of our lives and there are people all around us. And, you know, there, there are photojournalists that will go into a native territory and show the poverty. And, but they're not suffering from that poverty. And you know who, who's consuming these, these shows? The, who's consuming the, this video footage and these great documentaries? It's not the people who, are, who they're documenting. It's other people who, in many ways, perhaps what they're seeing is, well, this is how bad life can get. I'm not going to let myself get there. And yet, <laughs> they're going to say, we're all in this together. And we're not. And, and, I, and I think that's, I know I've said it multiple times through this program because that just hearing that expression just kind of, it, it stung. It stung to hear somebody say that when they've never lived a, a life of, of struggle. Look, and I, I, look, I know that wealthy people struggle with depression. Wealthy people struggle with, with substance abuse and they struggle with, with, but that's almost because of their affluence. And, but what I see a native person or a black person or some other person of color who has never had a fair shot, never had a t an opportunity to, you know, to, to get comfortable and stay comfortable for any extended period of time. Look, there are native territories that they're just incredible. I, I, I've lived on a few. And you know, look, have things improved? Yeah, they have. But even as we do things to improve, even as we, we, we you know, we, we develop industries, whether it's the sale of tobacco or gas or, or getting involved in gaming, we have to constantly fight for everything that we, that we, that we get a hold of. We've had to fight policies in Washington. We've had to fight, you know, uh, to, to do you know, different kinds of sales and we're fighting against the tax man in Albany. We're fighting against the tax man in Washington. We're fighting against the internal revenue service. We're fighting against, you know, everybody who is so hell bent on keeping us in our place. And that place is, is a spot on a, on a social scale, on an economic scale. It's not just the geography. 
look, we can we could develop economically in in, in many of our territories and, and have some level of success. But it's policy that makes the, this this the success impossible. You know, and then we then we'll hear, you know, presidents or you know or prime ministers talking about, well, yeah, we're going to make sure that we provide consultation to our native, uh, our natives. I always like the way they say that, the natives of Canada or of the United States, and that of has this like possession, you know, overtone to it. It's funny because in the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, it doesn't say anything about consultation. It says consent. It says that there needs to be free, prior, and informed consent. Not, eh, just have a meeting with them. Let them know what you're going to do to them before you do it to them. That's what consultation is. And then those don't even happen. When I think about half the stuff, look, a lot of stuff happened even during the Obama administration, the Obama-Biden administration, where they, they never fulfilled their commitment to have consultation. Forget about things like consent. This is the challenge that we have. So, I mean, even as native people, we aren't all at the same place. And for any of us who have been able to find some level of comfort, if we're not advocating for the people who are still struggling, then shame on, uh, shame on us. Because while we're not all the same, I mean, and I know I was just listening to a conversation about you know, self-determination today. Self-determination isn't a one-size-fits-all thing. What one people may determine is, is what's required for their self-determination might be different from territory to territory, from region to region. Ge geography uh, has a lot to do with it. Because our lifestyles have changed. We used to be able to you know, migrate across our own, uh, our, our own mother, so to speak, to, to make sure that we didn't have to endure harsh winters or we could go where the food was. Look, we weren't nomads. I mean, any more than the than the, than the folks who who winter in Florida, uh, the the affluent who winter in Florida and Arizona, they're not nomads either. They know exactly where they're going. But but our lives have been completely disrupted. So whatever this small little postage stamp size of property is that we've been able to hang on to, against incredible odds. We're struggling to, to, to maintain a life there. We're struggling for survival. Oftentimes, dignity is down the list because survival is what we're trying for. And for those moments that we can hold our head up, we do. But we're not all in this together. Not by any stretch of the imagination. There are, there are people who are carrying the heaviest burdens. And, and the crazy part is, if you look at the economic scales in the U.S. and Canada, there are more people that are falling from that middle down to the bottom every day. Because the wealthy people aren't falling to the middle class. The wealthy people are getting richer. It's everybody else that's dropping. And that's why the average income, the mean income, as they say, we can, we can look at those averages all you want. But that doesn't tell the story. It doesn't tell the story because if you're not going to understand the extreme levels of wealth, then you'll never understand the extreme levels of poverty. And that's, 
that's where most people of color find a big part of their population struggling at the very, very bottom of the economic scales. So what I need from somebody isn't just some sort of lip service that says, oh, we're with you. We got your back. We're going we're gonna to march with you in a, in a Black Lives Matter protest. Because that's not enough. Like I said, you know, when we talk about racism. It's not enough to say that you're not racist. If you're not fighting to end racism, if you're not an anti-racist, I mean, if look, there's this, you know, this um, movement that 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 I've been a part of called the the Poor People's Campaign, but even that doesn't address things in the in the way in the way different people are impacted by poverty. And the solution, everybody thinks that the, the solution to poverty is money. <laughs> no, it isn't. The solution to poverty is opportunity. And that's what we're missing. That's what we're missing across our territories. That's what most people of color are missing. Because you can't measure the decision-making process that somebody makes when they, they live in the inner city ghettos uh, you know, of, of an urban environment or in the remote places of a, of, you know, of a destitute native territory. You can't, you can't make a judgment about the decisions that people make when they are struggling for survival. You're, you're not in that situation. So your ability to judge the decisions and the choices that people make who are making desperate choices is never is never going to be a fair judgment. And why is that? Because we are not all in this together. I want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. This is John Kane. Yahweh.